You know, it's been said, absence makes the heart grow fonder. But that old adage didn't apply in Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. After Paul left Corinth, he he returned back to his home base of Antioch. A few months later, he embarked on his third missionary journey. When he arrived in Ephesus, he heard of problems in the church at Corinth. From Ephesus, Paul then wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. He sent it via his friend and co-worker, Titus. The reaction to Paul's letter was mixed. Some people repented. They responded with a godly sorrow that led to change, but others resented. How dare Paul rebuke us? Who does he think he is? Some critics in the church at Corinth, they began to question Paul's authority. They cast doubt on his integrity and his honesty, even his courage. You know, it was one thing to disagree with Paul, but the Corinthians, they resorted to mudslinging and slander. Hey, absence doesn't always make the heart grow fonder. News of their reaction to 1 Corinthians came to Paul in Macedonia. And it was there that he sat down and he penned another letter to these Corinthians. Guess what we call it? How about 2 Corinthians? In this letter, Paul's going to defend himself in his ministry. He becomes bold. He confronts his accusers. Needless to say, 2 Corinthians is an emotionally charged book. Paul shares his heart. He pleads his case as he does nowhere else in Scripture. Raw feelings get exposed in Paul's response to the Corinthians. This makes 2 Corinthians a vital book for the folks who want to serve the Lord. You know, ministry is not always easy. It's not always hassle-free. Helping hurting people gets messy. In fact, 2 Corinthians proves that ministry can be hazardous to your health. You know, one of the challenges in ministry is helping others without getting hurt yourself. This is why Lifeguarding 101 teaches you never to jump in and swim straight to a drowning person. The frantic person will overcome you and pull you under with them. That's why you have to toss them a lifeline. And the application for Christian service is that a good heart, a caring, well-meaning attitude is not the only thing you need in ministry. There is a right and wrong way to minister to drowning people. And these issues and more rise to the surface in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Here's a course in Soul Saving 101. Well, the letter begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, that's the city, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, that's the region. And here's Paul's greeting. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul commonly begins his letter such, grace and peace. But never forget, it's grace that always comes first, every time. Why? Because you can't really have peace with God without the grace of God. Notice verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This wonderful phrase appears three times in the New Testament. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There in Ephesians, Paul praises God for his past blessings, for the favor he has bestowed on all believers in Christ Jesus. It's interesting this phrase also appears in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice here, Peter praises God for giving us a future hope, the blessings we receive when Jesus returns. But now in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul again praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but not for his past blessings, not even for his future glories. This time he praises him for his present help, for God's comfort in the midst of our difficulties. Notice he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You know, the Greeks knew nothing of this kind of God. Their gods threw down thunderbolts and inflicted curses on people. They specialized in making life hard on those who crossed them. Natural disasters and sudden calamities were attributed to the capricious whims of the Greek gods. You served and you sacrificed to the gods, not out of love for them, but to pacify them, to keep them off your back and out of your affairs. What a surprise it was to these newly converted Corinthians, these Greeks, to hear that the one true God is a God of mercy and a God of comfort. Listen closely and you'll hear their sigh of relief down through the centuries. Ah, what a God. Not to be fretted or feared, but a God to run to for comfort. A God who will pick us up, not put us down. Paul says as much in verse 4. He refers to the true God as he who comforts us in all our tribulation. I love that about God. He promises to comfort us. It's interesting, this English word comfort is from two Latin words which mean with strength. Sure, God lets us cry on his shoulder. He provides that kind of comfort just as long as we need to release our pain. But he doesn't let us sulk. You see, God joins no pity parties. God never hosts any pity parties either. God's comfort is like the comfort I used to give to my kids whenever they were at bat and got hit by the ball. I would rush up and I would check them for serious injury. I would wipe away their tears. But after about 30 seconds or so, it was time to shake it off and take their base. We didn't have time to lick our wounds and rub our boo-boos. Look on the bright side, son. You got first base. My high school football coach, he had a rule. If you were seriously injured, he wanted you to stay on the ground. Don't move a muscle. Let someone come onto the field and they'll assist you to the sidelines. But if you just got the breath knocked out of you, or if you just pulled up with a cramp, He wanted you to get off the field as fast as you could on your own. He didn't want anybody applauding for somebody just because they got hurt. 
At times, you know, we think we deserve some applause just because we got injured. No, that's not how God's comfort works. Hey, Jesus is the balm of Gilead. He is the God of all comfort. He is the poultice that sucks out the pain and heals our boo-boos. But Jesus refuses to assign permanent disability. He heals you, yes. He comforts you, yes, so that he can send you back into action. We've got a game to play. You get first base. There's a battle to win, and we're all needed. Paul says God comforts us that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort which which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why does God comfort us? So we can extend comfort to others. Empathy may well be the most powerful force on earth. Did you know the knowledge that someone cares can reach into the deepest depression and lift that person out? Just knowing someone cares. Compassion and empathy are huge. David Osberger once wrote, It's so much easier to tell a person what to do with his problem than to stand with him in his pain. Isn't that true? I've heard it put, Someday, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, gravity, and outer space, we will harness the energies of love. And then for the second time in the history of the world, Man will have discovered fire. You can know the right words to say, but healing happens when truth is spoken in love, when comfort is extended. Notice verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Listen to how the Living Bible renders this. It says, you can be sure that the more we undergo sufferings for Christ, the more He will shower us with His comfort and encouragement. Notice, in other words, an abundance of suffering will equal an abundance of comfort. That's how it works. Here's a great poem. Until I learned to trust, I never learned to pray. And I did not learn to fully trust till sorrows came my way. Until I felt my weakness, his strength I never knew, nor dreamed till I was stricken that he could see me through. Who deepest drinks of sorrow, drinks deepest too of grace. He sends the storm so he himself can be our hiding place. His heart that seeks our highest good, knowing well that things annoy, we would not long for heaven if earth held the only joy. Notice verse 6. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. You know, Paul, in a sense, was in a no-win situation with his critics. On the one hand, there were people who could say, well, God surely protects his own. Anybody who's truly God's servant went and end up as in much trouble as Paul gets into. On the other hand, other people could accuse him. Well, look at Paul. He lives in a world opposed to the gospel, yet he never suffers. He, he must not be doing enough for God. It was damned if you do and damned if you don't. But Paul sets the record straight. Whether I'm condemned or whether I'm consoled, it's because of the will of God. 
If he was rejected, it was because he preached the gospel to a hostile crowd. If he was consoled, it meant that he found a receptive audience. And yet Paul's message was to preach the gospel regardless of the response. He says, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. You know, in his critics' eyes, Paul couldn't win. But in his own eyes, he couldn't lose. His hope was steadfast. If you suffer for Christ, you'll be comforted by Christ. Notice verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. What a candid, honest confession on the part of the Apostle Paul. Whatever hardship Paul was suffering in Ephesus had really crippled his confidence. Evidently, he got depressed. If he'd been alive today, he probably would have been prescribed some medication. He sounds like an old, worn-out dog. He just wishes God would come and put him down. Just call him home. Put me out of my misery, Lord. Imagine the great apostle Paul suffered from depression. And notice he didn't try to cover it up. He wasn't ashamed. As a matter of fact, he wants to be sure that the Corinthians knew what he went through for them. You know, it happens. Even God's servants battle the blues at times. And then verse 9, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. What did he mean by that? Some commentators believe a warrant was issued for Paul's arrest and execution. Whatever this sentence was, Paul was in some dire straits. He continues, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, here's the reason God had allowed this terrible trial in Paul's life. God was stripping him of his self-confidence, and he was replacing it with a God-confidence. And that's something that we all need. A wife decided to clean out her husband's wardrobe one day. She was tired of seeing him in all those old-fashioned threads that he used to wear. But he objected. He didn't think there was anything wrong in his taste of clothes. It was just fine. Well, the wife finally won the battle. You can guess that. And she added her husband's old clothes to the items that she was selling at the garage sale. And yet the husband felt vindicated when one of the first lady shoppers walked up and said she saw the clothes and she shouted, Perfect! This is exactly what I've been looking for. The husband was just about to take a jab at his wife with his very best, I told you so, when she added, These clothes will be perfect on the scarecrow I'm putting in my garden. Hey, everybody's diet needs a little slice of humble pie from time to time. Hey, we all need to be reminded that we're not all that. We're servants. The power always comes from God. You know, it's funny. Well, I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's an accident. I think it's God's a God thing. But it's interesting to me that my trash pickup is on Monday morning. That's when they pick up my trash. But what that means for me is at the end of a big day of ministry for Jesus, people getting saved, being a part of miracles, exciting things happening, 
I end my big day of ministry by rolling my trash can to the street. It's just a fitting reminder that it's God that raises the dead. I just put out the trash. It's God. It's not Paul. It's not you and me who he says delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Wow, you get the impression Jesus is the deliverer? Hey, if Jesus won for us such a great victory over death, why would you think he'd stand by and watch us flounder in life? No, Paul says he will still deliver us. God is faithful to the finish. And note how Paul finishes his thought here on Christ's deliverance. He says, you helping together in prayer for us. This Greek phrase, suno porgio. I think I got it right. It's here translated helping together. It's composed really of three words, with, under, and work. Put it all together. And the Greek term is a picture of several guys all pulling together as a team effort to lift a heavy object. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they're working together in prayer. That's why tonight when we prayed, we lifted up our burdens together. Life is full of objects too heavy to lift for us. Obstacles too entrenched for us to move. Mountains too high for me to climb on our own. But through prayer, we can join forces and we can overcome together, helping together. Christ delivers us. And we work together for a reason. Paul says that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And when we face a trial together in prayer, we can praise the Lord together when he answers that prayer. Prayer by many ends up as praise by many. In verse 12, Paul starts to respond to the criticisms that had been leveled at him. He says, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. Notice what Paul says up front. He can be bold in his defense because his conscience is clear. Here's our boasting. That we conducted ourselves in the world with simplicity and with godly sincerity. You know, real authority is born out of a clear conscience. Paul said he acted in simplicity and godly sincerity. You know, sadly, too many people today, they serve the Lord out of a buried shame. They can't live the life themselves, and so they teach or preach it to others. This is why the church today lacks boldness and real authority. You know, we, we've gotten away from being what we're supposed to be. We complicate church and ministry with man's wisdom, but it really is just as simple as walking sincerely and spreading God's grace. He says, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Apparently, Paul had been accused of talking out of both sides of his mouth. He was saying one thing, but living another. Paul says, not so. He defends himself again. He says, now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Now, on his way to Macedonia, Paul intended to stop off in Corinth. And he had spoke of his plan earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says, Now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Notice this, he had promised them that he was coming. The problem was is that he had been unable to fulfill his promise. He does allow for that, though. Notice the catch. Paul had summed it up from the very beginning. Notice what he adds. If the Lord permits. He had planned, but the Lord had not permitted. Now, obviously, Paul made plans. There's nothing wrong with planning. We should pray, and then we should plan. But Paul was always open to God changing his plans. Reminds me of James chapter 4. James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now... You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Make plans, he says, but don't be rigid or dogmatic about your plans. God can change those plans. Inflexibility is a denial of God's providence and his sovereignty. We need to be flexible. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Now, this is all background for some of the criticisms that they're going to make of Paul. Verse 17. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Now, because Paul had not visited Corinth like he had said on his way to Macedonia, his critics had used this as a reason to cast doubt on Paul's credibility. Oh, he's just wishy-washy. He can't make up his mind. He says one thing, and he doesn't do it. In essence, they were saying, why follow Paul when he doesn't know what he's doing and where he's going? If he's irresponsible with his schedule, how can we trust him when he speaks about God and faith? That was what the critics were saying. But Paul says, I can be trusted. I didn't make these plans lightly or flippantly. Everything Paul did in ministry was for a reason. Paul continues, or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? He wasn't making his moves based on fleshly or earthly wisdom. He was using godly principles. Verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Paul wasn't a guy who couldn't make up his mind, who would say one thing today and another thing tomorrow. No, his yes was yes and his no was no. And Paul points to his preaching as proof. He says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, 
In other words, there was no ambivalence to our preaching. There was no uncertainty or lack of clarity in, in our message to you. In fact, the hallmark of Paul's ministry was the definitiveness of the truths that he preached. Notice what he says. But in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes. And in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Here's where Paul got dogmatic, not in his planning. He was flexible in his planning, but he was dogmatic in his preaching, especially when he preached about Jesus. In him is yes. All the promises of God in him are yes, and in him are amen. There are scriptures that are sort of hard to interpret and pin down their meaning. They lend themselves, in fact, to multiple interpretations. They can be interpreted in multiple ways. And and in those interpretations, it's wise not to be too dogmatic or adamant. But those those passages, though, are the exception rather than the rule. Paul says the promises of God in Christ are yes and in him, amen. In other words, when it comes to Jesus, the truth about our Lord and the gospel of Christ, we can be certain. There's no ambiguity here. Thus, when we speak of Jesus, we need to be bold. There needs to be a surety about our witness, about what we preach. Don't ever share your your faith or share the gospel with a, uh, well, maybe, perhaps, well, I think, or it could be. No, no. When you speak of Jesus, speak with assurance. That's what Paul did. Verse 21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Boy, he shares some truths about the Holy Spirit here. You know, on the shipping docks of the ancient port, merchandise was marked by its owner's seal. The seal was a waxed impression that was applied to the merchandise. It proved ownership. And Paul is saying, this is the function of the Holy Spirit. We're on the dock, so to speak. We're about to take a voyage into eternity to the heavenly shore. And what is the proof of purchase? What is the mark that we belong to Jesus? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit that is the proof of God's purchase. His presence in us means that we belong to God. Paul also refers to the Spirit here as our guarantee, notice, or literally our down payment, the promissory note. The Holy Spirit is our down payment on the blessings of heaven. Did you know you can get a little taste of heaven through your experience with the Holy Spirit? By just walking with the Spirit and allowing your heart to commune with the Holy Spirit, you can get a little taste of heaven. He's our guarantee of heaven. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Now, Paul's about to share the reason he didn't make that trip. The reason he didn't come to Corinth was he didn't feel like chewing them out. He was angry about their carnality. If Paul had stopped in Corinth on his way to Macedonia, it would have been an unpleasant visit. The Corinthians needed to be disciplined. And he was hoping that they would get their act together before he came. He he wanted fellowship, not disfellowship. 
He says, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Now, Paul must have thought that he was sounding a bit bossy here. And so he assures the Corinthians, hey, you don't belong to me. I'm not your Lord. He had no desire to bully them or dominate their faith. Paul was just a concerned co-worker sharing biblical advice from a caring heart. Which leads to chapter 2. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Now notice this. Paul says that he won't come again in sorrow. And this has led some Bible scholars to believe that he had paid an earlier visit to Corinth that we're not told about in either his epistles or in the book of Acts. Acts 18 describes Paul's initial visit to Corinth. It was anything but sorrowful. It was a blast planning a church. He had a wonderful time. But it is possible that when Paul heard about the problems in Corinth, he did make a quick jaunt across the Aegean from Ephesus to address some of these issues, and it turned into a sorrowful experience. A confrontation ensued. Notice verse 2. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have had joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. You see, Paul didn't like being the heavy unless he had to be. This is why he usually sent Timothy or Titus to be the enforcers. You know, someone other than Paul himself needed to do the dirty work. And this is a good policy in ministry. It's actually the strategy that we use at Calvary Chapel. Once upon a time, I used to do all of the church disciplines. I was the one who went to the folks who were in sin and had the hard conversations. And if they accepted what I said, great. But if they disagreed or if they bucked or if they questioned or if they got mad at me, then they ended up leaving the church and they were no longer hearing the Word of God. Several years ago, though, I decided to turn all of the discipline and confrontations over to the elders and the assistant pastors. Now when a person gets angry, they get ticked off at the elders. But they still come to church and hear the teaching from me. My relationship with them is preserved so that I can help them grow in the Lord. And this is the reason Paul wanted to preserve his relationship with the Corinthians. This is why he didn't come initially. He says in verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Now, even though he didn't go and confront them personally, he still let them know, let them know what he felt about their sin. He had written that letter, 1 Corinthians. Now, when we read 1 Corinthians, we didn't realize that Paul had bathed that scroll in prayer, in tears. But he had. Here he says that he had written 1 Corinthians in anguish of heart. And with many tears, it grieved him that the people in Corinth needed to be disciplined. He says, but if anyone has caused grief... He has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. You remember the sin in the church. It wasn't just an affront to Paul personally. It was a blight to the whole church. That's why it grieved him so. 
You remember the sin of Achan in the Old Testament? One man's sin led to God's punishment in the entire nation's defeat. Paul's saying the same phenomenon is now occurring in Corinth. And recall the situation that Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians. A brother in the church was shacking up with his father's wife, his mother, his stepmother. And the church hadn't stepped in to deal with this sinful situation. In fact, they had tolerated this blatant incest in the church. And worse, they were proud of their tolerance. Oh, they thought they were being non-judgmental. You remember, Paul had rebuked the Corinthians. There's no merit in us being soft on sin. The man's sin was a cancer. And if you don't rid the body of the cancer, it spreads. And it eats away at the health of the whole. The church needed to call this man to repentance or else give him his marching orders one. His choice was to repent or be disfellowshipped. They needed to tell this man not to come back until he righted his ship. And apparently they did. And the discipline worked for notice verse 6. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary... You ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Isn't this beautiful? The discipline worked. The fellow repented, and now Paul's urging them to forgive. Apparently, though, the Corinthians had swung to the opposite end of the pendulum. I mean, the fact that they needed urging to forgive is evidence. In his first letter, Paul emphasized the need for discipline, but now he has to encourage them to forgive the man and to receive him back. Reaffirm your love for him. Notice verse 9. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. You know, we usually think, of church discipline as a test of the person who's fallen into bondage. But it is actually an indicator of the spiritual health of the whole church. When a situation arises that needs to be addressed, it's the church and its leadership that's being tested. You know, most married couples, they want to have a baby, but they don't want to have to change a bunch of smelly diapers, do they? And that's how I see church discipline. We like to see folks get born again. But a church with a lot of spiritual babies has to change a lot of dirty diapers. It's a part of life. We just need to roll up our sleeves and care. Then he says, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now I've forgiven the man, he says. Now you need to. You know, once a person does repent, we all need to be swift to forgive. If not, we play right into the devil's hands. Revelation 12 verse 10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. You see, Satan loves to take a person that Christ forgives and bury him under a mound of condemnation. Let's not help him. Church people actually assist the devil 
by either withholding forgiveness or tolerating sin. We shouldn't do either. He says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now, Paul explains again why he hadn't returned to Corinth. He sent Titus to deliver his first letter, but when he left for Macedonia, Titus had yet to report back with the Corinthians' response. And Paul wanted to hear from his sidekick. He wanted to know how the Corinthians had responded before he made his visit. You know, it amazes me that most of the ill feelings of these Corinthians toward Paul arose simply because he didn't visit them when he said he might. Isn't that amazing? They got all up in arms over that. It just goes to show that it's the little stuff that causes the biggest problems. Major schisms can occur in a church over miscommunications. I've had people get mad at me and harbor a grudge for years just because of a simple confusion. I mean, rather than assume the worst, if they had just come to me and asked me what I really meant by what I did or what I said, we could have resolved the conflict like that and we could have enjoyed fellowship together. Instead, we were robbed because of a little thing. Notice how Paul concludes chapter 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. I love that. He diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge through us. That's how it works. Here's some historical background is extremely helpful. Here he talks about that God leads us in triumph in Christ. He talks about the triumph. A Roman triumph was the equivalent of a ticker tape parade. If a military commander won a great victory over an enemy, and there were some conditions, if it was on foreign soil, if he had captured at least 5,000 soldiers, and if he had gained new territory for the emperor, he got rewarded with a triumphant processional. The honored general would ride in a golden chariot. He was flanked by his officers. The spoils of victory were on display. His conquering army, along with his conquered foe, was marching behind him. And then the priests added to the spectacle by burning incense and by filling the streets of the city with a sweet fragrance. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is also the conquering general who is forever celebrating his triumph. Jesus also won a battle on foreign soil. He was God, but he humbled himself as a man, and he was dispatched to a foreign front. He also conquered 5,000 people. Do you remember? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved, and then several days later, another 2,000 were added to the ranks. We've also been added to the victor's spoils. But then Paul adds to the analogy of this conquering general, I think a beautiful thought. Verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death 
and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. I love this. Hey, we're not only the spiritual spoils of our general. We're not only the foe that Christ has captured. We're not only the conquering army who will return to Jesus. We're all of that. But we're also the fragrance of Christ. You are the fragrance of Christ. (laughs) That means we're all a bunch of little stinkers. That's what it means. You know, to other Christians, you're a breath of fresh air. Have you noticed that when you discover another Christian in the office, there's this instant camaraderie? It happens. A bond forms. You support them, then they start supporting you. But to the man who rejects Christ, you're also a fragrance, but you're, to him, an embarrassing odor. I guess you could call us body odor. After all, we are the body of Christ. To the person who's rejected Christ, we're body odor. But when an unbeliever, when an unbeliever smells our fragrance, he wants to open up the window. He wants to get us out as quick as we can. A Christian is a perfume to some and a noxious fume to others. Yet here's the deal. If I don't give off any odor, if no one smells me, if I'm odorless, that's when there's something wrong. If I can walk in a room and the people present don't either hold their nose or take a deep breath, something's wrong. We should be the fragrance of Christ. Either way, we should give off His aroma. And this carries with it heavy responsibility. Notice Paul asks, and who is sufficient for these things? Wow, all the glory belongs to our triumphant General Jesus. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. You know, the one smell that neither believer nor unbeliever should ever have to tolerate is that of hypocrisy. That's a bad air. That fouls up the atmosphere for everybody, hypocrisy. Phoniness is the greatest stench. It's like rotten eggs and spoiled milk. Whatever you do, he says, don't play the hypocrite. Notice in closing here, Paul wasn't a peddler of the word. I I can't help it. If you're a used car salesman, forgive me, but that's what I think about, a peddler of the word. Paul wasn't the guy who's slapping the hood of the car, you know, shouting out, you know, claims that he can't keep, telling you what you want to hear. No, no. Paul was sincere. He spoke the truth. You know, a witness for Jesus doesn't have to be smart or articulate or even talented, but there is one indispensable qualification for anyone who serves the Lord, and that is sincerity. May we all be sincere. May we all be a fragrance of Jesus Christ, for that is how God diffuses His knowledge through the world, through you and me. We are the fragrance of Christ. And there you have the first two chapters in 2 Corinthians.